Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the book of Romans chapter 12, Pastor Murphy showed us that biblical change is so difficult because our minds are being conformed to a worldly mindset. Today we'll continue to see what conforming to the world looks like. Turn with me please back to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read verses, begin at verse number 1, and then I'll read verse 1. But my text is actually Romans chapter 2. Uh, follow with me, please. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but, ye, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may approve what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, this is your word, and you have ordained that your word should be preached in your church. Our task is not that of morality or politics or economics. Our task is to teach biblical theology and truths concerning man's moral condition and the need for man to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. And keep us focused on your word and help us not to be distracted by what is in the world and what uh, could garner our attention so that we lose sight of our ultimate purpose of preaching truth. I pray that you would help me this morning as I once again try to unravel the meaning of this text and try to make it as practical as possible for the believer and I pray that they would have been stirred in our hearts in the past four messages that we have a profound need for change the only way we can change the world is if the church would change itself then we will have the impact that you have designed for your church to have. Help us as we work our way through this verse and spend some time understanding its contents and then to see exactly how it applies to us. I pray that our hearts would be moved in the direction of wanting to attain that to which Paul exhorts us. We ask you this morning for help, for guidance, for wisdom for the capacity to convey truth in a morsel that people can digest. And I pray, Lord, for your divine help uh, in this matter. If there's been anyone here this morning that is not saved and who have come into this congregation, uh, may something we say in the process of preaching your word awaken in them the need of Christ and Christ alone. And may you move upon their hearts so that they may 
turn to him and fully trust him as Lord and Savior. We look to you this morning. We ask for your blessing upon our service. In Christ's name, amen. My text is Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And once again, I want us to return to my New Year theme of the imperative of change in the believer's life. Last Sunday, I began the formidable task of fleshing out Paul's skeletal outline on this subject. I think it is necessary to keep in mind the flow of the Apostle Paul's thoughts as we examine the key concepts that he gives us in this passage about the matter of change. If you look at the passage, you'll find that Paul's thoughts are both simple and profound. Simple in terms of the outline in which Paul gives us this subject. I've given you a threefold outline of this particular verse. The Apostle Paul, first of all, deals with the problem of change. Secondly, the Apostle deals with the process of change. And then thirdly, the Apostle Paul deals with the purpose of change. But the ideas embodied in this brief, simple outline are very deep and profound. The Apostle Paul understood, as most rational people do, that you cannot offer a solution unless you first diagnose and understand the problem. And that's why the Apostle Paul, first of all, before he even offers a solution, he begins to deal with the problem. If you attempt to answer a question without hearing the question, you are guilty of conceited insanity, and Paul would never be charged with such conceit. And that's why the Apostle Paul, before he deals with the, uh, the matter, he first of all explains the problem. So we learned last week, if you were here, as we began this matter of the subject of change, the first thing that need to, we need to grasp is to understand what hinders, what impedes, or what frustrates the success of change in the believer's life. And what precisely did Paul say was the malignant influence that hindered change? We discovered that the Apostle Paul says that the problem really is that we are being conformed to the world. Uh, I want to deal with that a little bit more this morning. We are being conformed to the world. And what Paul is talking about is that the church has adopted a spirit of worldliness. That the ideas floating around the world has somehow siphoned themselves into the church. And the believers have somehow imbibed those ideas so that their mindset, rather than being biblical, have become secular. That's what Paul is trying to deal with in this chapter. But we learn that the word that Paul uses here for world is not the word cosmos. The normal Greek word that refers to the world of people or the physical universe is the word cosmos. But it's not the word that Paul uses here when he says, be not conformed to the world. The choice of word that Paul uses is the word ion. A-I-O-N in the Greek language. And it refers to the age or a period of time 
This is what Paul is talking. Be not conformed to the age or the period of time in which you live. That's what he's saying. He's not talking about conforming to the physical world. You can't conform to the physical world. But he's saying the ideas that characterize the time is what you as a believer need to be careful that they don't so much affect your mind that you never see biblically any longer. You look to a spectrum or spectacles of worldliness. It's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. When he said that if our gospel be hid, it is hid to, to them who are blinded by the God of this world. Not the God of the cosmos, but the God of the age. See, He is the one that controls the thinking, the pool of ideas. Behind these pool of ideas, the source, the ultimate source, is an infernal spirit called Satan or the devil. But today people think that uh, he doesn't exist. And there's nothing more clever than an enemy that's incognito, that people refuse to believe in. It's the same word that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 1 verse 7 when Paul said that God has delivered us from this present evil age. Not present evil world, but age, the times. And it's the same word that we find in Ephesians chapter 2 that talks about the course of the world. The little word is the course of the age. And what that means is a, a direction, a, it's a, a philosophy, see? a course, basically, that characterizes this age. R.C. Trench, in his um, classic standard book on New Testament synonyms, uh, defines this word this way. I, I don't know if I gave it to you last time, but that's how he decides, defines it. He says... It's the floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations of any current time in the world that is antithetical to God and his will. That is what Paul is talking about here in this particular passage. Just in case the expression that he used in the definition proves a little bit difficult for us to, to wrap our minds around, Trench went on to explain what this means in more concrete terms. He said it refers to the world's entertainment, the world's fashion, the world's music, the world's vocabulary, the world's values, and the world's attitudes. See? This is what worldliness is about. See? And he's saying to us in this passage that the problem, until we face it, is that we are too worldly in our thinking. We don't accept that as a premise. We're not ready to go on and deal with the other matter that Paul is talking about. See? We can't give you a solution until you diagnose and understand the problem. I said last week that in modern terms, we will call this the secularization of life. The shaping and the molding of the mind within a secular framework. Indoctrinating the mind to embrace the secular philosophy and ideology of life. And which makes as the goal of life three main needs of man. The Bible characterizes those three, need, need, uh, three different needs that man pursues 
or goals that man pursues uh, with language of John. But I mentioned the three things that this worldly spirit, this worldly mindset that channels our mind in a direction where we're trying to achieve three goals. One, to satisfy the physical appetites of the body. That's the world. That has to do with food and sex. Basic. That's the essence of the basic things that the physical man pursues. Food and sex. The physical appetites. And uh, the world directs us and that's where we find satisfaction. Our physical appetite. Secondly, in the area of our aesthetic taste. The Bible called it the lust of the eyes. What do we call today? The fine things of life. The attractive car, the attractive house, the attractive chain, the attractive garments that people think are needed in order for them to be considered significant or to have achieved success. I have mentioned this and it just came to my mind again. How ridiculous it is. When I was living in Solution, I spent 10 years in Solution to assure Miko. There are people who left the Caribbean in the 60s and came back before I left. And they built mansions, houses, two and three story, four and five bedrooms. And guess who's living in there? One person. I used to wonder, you could sleep one room one night, one room the other night. And the thing, by the way, by the time you get back and you build that house, you only got about five years to live. Some of them were not even able to live in the houses they built. One man I remember very clearly, he went blind. And a raster took over the house. Man are so blinded as to what is really significant or what is of real value. And it's this mindset that not only controls the world, but has also infiltrated the church. And that's what Paul is, is talking about. So not only our physical appetites and our aesthetic tastes, but also our ambitious goals. What is called the pride of life. By that I mean the things in life that we consider are the marks of success and significance and fulfillment. So what we have substantiated today is the world is in pursuit of a certain things and the church is in pursuit of the same things. There's very little differentiation between the objectives and the goal of the collective mass of people, save or unsafe. This is the danger. And Paul is saying to the believer, I want you to change. But you can never change until you understand where the problem lies. Your resistance to change is because your mind has been secularized. Wanting the same values, the same objectives. And consequently, you find it difficult to pursue this biblical course of transformative change. This then is the thing that we are dealing with uh, as believers. It's the kind of life that is lived without any reference whatsoever to God. Let me, let me use an illustration that might come up. For example, what career should I choose? Does the question ever enter the person, well, what does God want me to do? 
No, mommy and daddy says, you know, this is where the money is. It's in accounting. No, it doesn't matter you don't have the skill or the aptitude for that. But you're pushed in that direction. And you know what? It is frustration for you because you're trying to achieve an ideal that God did not make for you. What kind of person should I marry? Or what kind of house should I own? Or what kind of car should I own? See, Am I going to own something to keep me for the next 20 years or 40 years so I can't do anything? If God were to call me, I can't go anywhere because I, my stakes are so tied down, I can't do anything? Or do we ask God, God, what's, what do I want? What do you want for me? I know these are terrible thoughts, and no doubt they'll disturb your equilibrium, but they need to, because that's a fundamental problem with the church. It has this secularized mindset that is an impediment to real, genuine, transformative change that the Bible requires. I'm talking about an independent, autonomous life whose sphere and orbit and purpose for existence is this world as we know it. And any suggestion or any claim that is offered to these people who think that way, that there is an eternal, transcendent future, they say that it's a delusion and that is a distraction and a distortion. What we need to concentrate is on the here and now. See? I hope you understand the problem that Paul is dealing with. And by the way, such people have no real interest in the kingdom of God because they want to build a kingdom for themselves. So you have an enormous challenge of moving them from secular thinking to biblical thinking. They put up all forms of opposition against the suggestion that my mind and my thoughts are going down the wrong line. Self-conceit is one of the great problems. And we've got to be very careful that our thoughts and our treasure are not just earthbound. We have to, as Paul says, Think on things above. Think on things above. For the things that are seen are not real, but the things that are not seen are real. But that's not the mindset that governs the thinking within the church of Jesus Christ. So last Sunday, we explained how this subtle, nefarious system of brainwashing uh, occurs uh, in the church and we mentioned the fact that uh, we are now in a scientific age of technology and electronics and science and all this kind of gadgetry. And the enemy is exploiting that to transform our minds. I called your attention to two things last, last Sunday. Number one, I called your attention to the means that are being used and to the method that is being employed. Remember what the means were? The three central cardinal means that are being used today to uh, secularize our mind. We mentioned it. One is the media. I'm not going to go through that again. The other one is music. And the third one is pornography. 
These are the three fundamental basic means that are being used today, and they have been enormously successful. Enormously successful. The second thing I pointed out to you is the method or the technique by which these things are employed to secularize our mind. And I mentioned that there was a six-step process that is operating on us. And quickly, I'll just mention these. Number one, you're exposed to familiar images in a non-threatening atmosphere. That is your home or maybe going to the cinema. See, Those are the two key places. They, they want to change you, but they can't tell you they're doing the work to change you. So what they do, they get you very comfortable. And they use images that you are quite familiar with. And they use those, first of all, to settle you down. So you're, as I mentioned before, you're watching a movie. And you're enjoying the plot. But suddenly there's a twist where there is a scene where the two people are going to bed to have sex. You know what happened to you the first time that happened? It doesn't happen any longer. I know it doesn't happen any longer because you've gotten accustomed to that. So you're no longer offended by that any longer. You can watch it. Except the only time you turn it off is when somebody else is, is there. But you watch it. You know what has happened? They give you that first scene and your soul says, this is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. I can't stand it. But then what they do suddenly, they give you it for about one minute and then they change the scene back to your normal images that you are accustomed to. And what they do there, they calm you down again. Calm you down. Go on as normal. And then suddenly again, they reintroduced it for another minute. Again, you're a little bit upset. But then they change the scene again. They do that at least 20 to 30 times. And by the time they've done that 20 to 30 times, your mind has now adjusted to it. So you're no longer offended by it. There's not a single Christian sitting here this morning that 20 years ago you would have sat down and watched a sex scene in a movie. You would never have done that. But how come it doesn't bother you anymore? And you know why? You have been systematically desensitized. And these people know exactly what they are doing. See? And that's what makes it so difficult to deal with this subject. And Paul understood this. See? Understood this very clearly. So the subtle, sinister, satanic scheme has been the chief means of producing the modern church. How would you describe the modern church? Here's how I describe it. A passive, tolerant, timid, non-confrontational church. One that seems afraid to stand for truth because of the attendant political, social, economic, and personal and legal fallout and cost to them. That's a general description of the modern church. It doesn't seem prepared to stand for anything. Some time ago, and I don't remember how long ago, um, 
people make statements and you know you don't have to pick them up and deal with them at the same time but it gives you an idea of the mindset um, but it has to do with hiring the teachers and uh, I was pretty much given the idea that you can't let the government know you, you, don't, you don't hire non-Christians we can do it but you can't let them know I thought that was weird weird don't you think that's weird? That a Christian school cannot say only hires Christian teachers? Would the Labour Party would only have Labour people? And UPP would only have UPP people? So I couldn't understand why the Christian church cannot say we only hire Christians. Why are we afraid? Now I might be old in my thinking but I hope you understand I'm biblical as well in my thinking when we let these little things and we give in and we give in and we get the big thing is coming when we don't have the strength or the power or the courage to stand any longer and that's why we have to understand there is an imperative that we need to change and what I mean, we need to change our mindset. It had been so secularized. We don't even realize our way of thinking is worldly. Honestly, we don't even realize that. I listen to people sometimes, quite frankly. And I, I, I get where they're coming from. But it's very clear to me that it's not biblical in their thinking. I don't know if you agree with me or not. But I was thinking recently as I was going through this message. If the modern church that we have today had existed in the dark ages from 500 AD to 1500 AD, when the world was in darkness, when Rome and her superstitious beliefs controlled the world, I have said to myself, if the modern church existed, then we would never have had the Reformation. Never. We don't have the moral courage and the conviction that those men had. You know what it is to stand up one man against the whole world? That was Luther. Against the whole, I didn't say against Germany or France, against the whole world. That's the kind of courage that we're missing in the contemporary church. And the reason for that is that we have been systematically desensitized and systematically reindoctrinated in the philosophy of worldliness and, and the secular ideology. But I thank God that he had a Luther, he had a Calvin, and he had a Zwingli, and he had a John Knox. Men who were willing to take a stand even at great personal cost to themselves. Because they were governed by something called the book. That mattered to them more than life itself. And they were able to achieve such phenomenal success so that we today, 
are enjoying the fringe benefits of the Reformation. And by the way, do you know what came out of the Reformation ultimately? Are you aware of what really, really happened? What came out of this Reformation is what we call democracy. So we're enjoying democracy today because these men took a stand. Put an emphasis on the individual. Not the king. Not the nobles. But the individual. And today we are now enjoying the fringe benefits of their sacrifice and their life. I would like to say this this morning. It doesn't take a great band of faithful heroes to change the world and change a country. You don't need an army of saints. You just need a handful of faithful men of God. And I would add women of God too to bring about a change in the society. That's all I want. You check any revival, you check any renewal in the church, and you will see it always started with a little handful. Never the masses. I'm saying that to say this. It is easy to get discouraged when you look around and see what is happening. It's easy to get frustrated when you see what is going on in the churches. It's easy to become completely distraught that how can it get any worse? But I want to say this morning, there's hope. And that hope is found in when you look at church history, you discover that this problem, this plague, this dilemma of worldliness is not something new to the church. It is something that the church has had to deal with in every single dispensation of its ministry. It's not new. Every, every group of believers have had to fight what we call the world and worldliness. We now are fighting it. They gain the success. The question is, will we? That is the big issue this morning. Let me explain that this morning because I want you to go back to this passage and let me show you that this is the problem Paul was facing in the day in which he lived. Look at it again. He says, and be not conformed to this world. Let's stay with that for just a moment. Let's take that phrase and let us, uh, that, that clause, and let us, let's dissect it. Let's look at the words and just look at the grammar for just a moment so you understand what Paul is dealing with in this passage. First of all, the verb conform is what you call a present passive verb. I get a present passive verb. The voice is passive. Now, what's the significance of that? What Paul is saying here, this is, let me give you a little translation of what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying to these believers, stop being conformed to the world. That's what he's saying. Stop being conformed to the world. And the reason why Paul can say that is because that was what was happening in the church at the time. Stop it. 
He has the verb conform and he has the negative may. Now let me uh, go in a little bit further into an understanding of what Paul is really saying here in this passage. The present tense, what does that mean? The present tense in the Greek language is, the, is the, what is called the linear tense. It's a continuous tense. It is something that's continuing to happen. The aorist tense is a thing that happened here and it stops here. The perfect tense, something happened here and it continues. But in the present tense, it's a continuous thing. And that's, the, that's what he's using here. Stop it! You are allowing it! Stop it! It's time to stop in the church. That's a first century church, brethren. The second thing that we see, the verb is in a passive voice. Everybody know that when the verb is in the active voice, the subject is acting. When the verb is in the passive voice, something is being done to the subject. So what Paul is here saying, stop being so passive that you are being made conform to the world. They're being conformed and they don't even realize what is happening. It's in the passive voice. They are not actively conforming to the world. But they're being passively conformed by the world. The world is acting on them and changing them. And Paul is saying, stop it, don't allow it. Passive voice. I said last week um, that there are only two main gates that worldliness get into us. Two main gates. Remember what those gates were? Anybody remember? The eye gate. So that is what you watch. That's what you watch. Never forget that. That is what you watch. The second gate is what? The ear gate, what you listen to. These are two. Look, and this is where the modern man is. He's being both uh, impacted by what he sees and by what he, he hears, what he listens to. And he doesn't even realize it is transforming your mind. I used the illustration last time. You've got one or two choices. One or two choices. You can either shut off the door or you can sanitize it after it's into the door. It's like sewage. Sewage is coming into your house. What are you going to do? You cut off the sewage or you allow the sewage to come, but then you put disinfectant on it. Which is more effective? Now, I'm going to, I know where I'm going with this here because I'm going to talk about ways in which the church has conformed to the world in another message. But I don't want people to think that worldliness is just watching television or listening to music. I'm not, if you think that's what I'm saying, you're missing the whole boat. I'm not offering a moratorium that you can't watch television. That's not what I'm saying either. But what I'm saying to you that you must judiciously guard what comes into the eye and what comes into the ear. And that makes sense to everybody except the Christian. So the verb in the passive voice. And Paul is saying in this satanic mind game that is trying to influence and control your thinking you are like a passive individual just allowing it to happen to you. You're not, he's not blaming them for doing it to themselves, you know. Otherwise, you would use the active voice, but he use a passive voice. It's happening to you, and you don't even know it's happening. Now, to give you an idea that I'm not a, a person against television, I like forensic files. 
One of the best pictures in my on, on is forensic fire. I like to see all the solved cold, cold crimes and hope what people. I've seen things where um, a man is drinking arsenic for quite a while, knowing his wife is poisoning him. But then I understand that every time his hair grows, you can measure how much when it's by the length of the hair by just measuring it. It goes into the hair, so they can know stuff like that. I mean, that is fascinating, really fascinating. But we've got to be careful, brethren. We've got to be careful because, let me put it this way. If you were Satan, what would you do to destroy the church and neutralize the test? What would you do? Tell me what you do. Tell me what you do. You'll persecute the church. You know what happens when you persecute the church? The church will grow. At no stage in church history has not the church grown when they were persecuted. Because people realize these people are serious. It seems to me that if I were the devil, the best way to destroy the church and destroy the church is to somehow inject in their minds thoughts and ideas that they're not even aware that I'm putting in there subtly, etc., etc. Does that make sense? Well, let me tell you something. If it doesn't make sense, that's exactly what is happening. That's why you're so deluded. You don't believe it is happening. Therefore, you don't put your guard on it. The enemy has the best of you. And of course, there's a negative may. Now, let's look at the word conform. The word conform is the word systematizo. And it means to fashion or shape one thing like another. Okay? To fashion or shape one thing or another. So the gist of what Paul is saying is that the world is putting its impress in your mind. It's shaping you. Like it is itself, that's how it's shaping you. I think I quoted J.B. Phillips' uh, New Testament translation, which says, don't let the world fit you into its mold. I think I might have quoted that at some point in time, but that's the whole idea. The world has a certain distinct philosophy, thinking, ideology, values, attitudes. And uh, the satanic world, by the way, the world is not controlled by Gaston Brown or Biden. Okay? But the truth of the matter is, whether or not that is the case, this, this, what, the, the, Satan controls the ideas in the world. All the chief leaders of major powers of the world, he controls those ideas. He's behind it all. He's called the God of this age. The God of the times. But here's the problem. Christians don't seem to believe that. You can preach that from the pulpit, but they don't seem to believe that. And I, I can't understand why it is so difficult to understand biblical teaching on this matter. Again, you know what the problem is? We've been secularized. And we don't see any connection between what's going on in the church and what's going on in the world and the synthetic mastermind that is engineering all that is happening to bring it to a climax. We don't understand that. What we see is pigmentation, color, skin, black, white, green, yellow. That's the problem. When the Bible says man's problem is not his pigmentation, it's his heart. And all people's hearts are the same. They're evil, they're corrupt, they're sinful. They have a depraved nature. No color has any prominence in evil. 
It's the heart of man that's evil. But that's a distraction. That's a distraction. And that's why we can't solve the problems in the world, by the way. Because there's only one solution to a problem, and that is Christ. He's the only one that can change the heart. All the other things are putting plaster on cancers. Nothing permanent, just something temporary. And then it opens up again and festers again. Be sure to join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us a time in history when the conditions were the same to today and how it was changed by the church. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.